right. My microphone's not there. There we go. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? I don't know about that extra hour of sleep. It's the extra hour of sleep. I still wake up at the same time. I don't know about you. I just, just, just a different number on the clock. But you're all here, and it's good to see everybody. And uh, today we are going to be uh, continuing on in our series called We Press On. And today we're talking about pressing on into the church, the church. I can be more excited than I am today to talk about this topic with you. And, and we're going to begin, um, today I'm going to begin in verse uh, 13, although up on the screen you're only going to see Matthew 15, that's where we're going to catch up to it. But with that, I'm going to begin. This is Peter's confession of Christ. It says this, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? What about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I'll tell you this, Peter, uh, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is the word of the Lord for us today. We receive it with joy today. A.W. Tozer has a quote, and I love it. He says this, he said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I want you to think about that. It shapes the very way in which we see our life and the world around us. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And Jesus asked Simon, hey, what comes to your mind when you think about God? He says, who do you say that I am? He says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. And he says these words, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not overcome it or prevail against it. In the New Testament, the word church is used 111 times. 111 times. So it's no small theme of the New Testament. And when it's used 77 times, it is used in its singular form, as in Good News Church, as in First Presbyterian Church, as in First Baptist Church. It doesn't mean church universal. 37 times that is there. And if you, any of you are familiar with the Apostles' Creed, it says, we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, and sometimes Protestants get upset and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. It doesn't, it doesn't mean the Roman Catholic Church, when the Apostles' Creed says the Holy Catholic Church, it means the church universal, the church everywhere. And 37 times that word is used to express the church. But a lot of times, and, and by the way, we can even go further because this idea of church, the, use, the word church was not used in the Old Testament. A different word was, was ecclesia was the word in the Old Testament. And that was used 69 times. And it meant, it meant the called out ones. There was always a called out group of people. And the, 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 uh, the translation for ecclesia, it means assembly or congregation. You know, we'll say we have a church congregation. That comes to us all the way from the Hebrew word ecclesia. And so this, this idea of church, not in the abstract big form, but in the local church form, uh, has been a prevailing uh, theme of Scripture. Jesus established the church to be a public, earthly institution that would mark out, affirm, and oversee those who profess to believe 
in him. So when people say like, well, I am the church and you're the church and I had church in the woods today and I had church on the mountain and I had church bass fishing this morning, they're missing a point that the scripture makes clear. And that is the call for us to gather together. And I think we probably all experienced this during COVID, the heartache of being not able to come together. I remember the very first time after COVID separated us and we had to kind of scuttle up our churches and, and do it all online. When we finally got back together, remember we had an outdoor service. I got up and I couldn't help but cry. I couldn't help but cry. To just be together again. You could feel like this is what Jesus wants. It's the, it's the congregation. Even when we talk about communion, you know the word communion means common union. We come together in common union and, and share at the Lord's table. This is the heart of God. And I understand there are exceptions to the rule. Let me be gracious. That people who can't come to church or because of illness or some other such thing. But that is not normative. What is normative, biblically speaking, is that we take the Lord's day and we gather together and we lift up the name of God together. So important. I want to share four points today from this uh, verse, but also from the theme of the scriptures. And this is the first one, is that the kingdom is the purpose and the church is the vehicle. Matthew 6, 9 says, pray like this. You we're familiar with the Lord's Prayer, which is one of the most uh, sound uh, scriptures to kind of learn a uh, daily Christian living from. It says, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, and here it is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Whole books have been written, and I certainly could preach whole series on the idea of kingdom, but for the sake of brevity today, I'll say this, is that the basic meaning of the word kingdom is, in the Bible, is God's kingly rule, his reign, his action, his lordship, and his sovereign governance. And so in, in, in Matthew 6, Jesus comes and he says, pray like this. He would say to all of us again today, here's how you should pray. Pray, God, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. And that's a big word. It has a lot of implication with inside of it. So, so how does he make it more uh, tactile? How does he make it more concrete from this abstract idea? I'll answer it. And he answers it here in Matthew um, 6, 18. He says, I will build the the church, I will build the church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So interesting. See, there's a lot of good things Christians do. We call them parachurch organizations. Maybe it's a, a, a rescue mission or a, a pregnancy center or a soup kitchen or an orphanage or a hospital or a Christian band or none of that is bad. In fact, I'd say a lot of it's awesome. And thank God for Christians who go out and launch those things. But Jesus did not come to say, I have, I, I'm going to build the Christian radio station and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He didn't say, I'm going I'm to build a, a, a book manufacturing company and the gates. No, he said, I'm going to build the church. He said, this is the thing I'm going to use to make a visual representation of the kingdom of God here on earth. We pray that as people come to the church on a, on a weekly basis, they experience something inside Leesburg, inside Florida, inside America that is otherworldly. 
They say there's something different here. And you say, oh yeah, because we're, we're tasting and seeing the kingdom of God here on earth. It's not full yet. Listen, it's not full yet because some of you are still sick and, and, and we still have perishable bodies. But we're praying, we, we say this kingdom now, but not fully yet. When the kingdom of God comes fully, it's all going to be different. But we're tasting and seeing the goodness of God in, in attitudes and in hearts and in people being free. And, 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 and there's a joy and there's a hope. And there, it's, it's countercultural, which I'm going to get to to a minute, but Jesus himself ordained it that the church would be the representation of the kingdom. For some of you who are a little older, maybe you know the name Bono, maybe you know the, the band U2. I have a couple people who obviously know who I'm talking about, but in his autobiography, he's a very famous, one of the most wealthy business, uh, musicians. Uh, been around a long time. I don't even know how old he is now. I think he's not young anymore. But in his autobiography, he tells a story how when he would write an album or go on a tour or start a business, he had this pastor he'd go to. And he'd say to the pastor, could you bless this that I'm about to do? Could you pray God's blessing? You know, it's like Rocky, you know. Hey, Father, throw down a blessing, you know. And so he goes to the priest, or the, and I think it was a Protestant pastor, actually. And he says, would you bless it? And he said something so profound to, to Bono. He said, you should figure out what God's doing and do that, because that's already blessed. And for Bono, the implication of that was understanding the need to help the poor. Because the Bible says that God's with the poor. But can I tell you, God's with the church. And if you want to be blessed, and I want to be blessed, I'm going to get behind what Jesus is behind. I want to be a part of what Jesus is a part of, and he's a part of building the church. The kingdom is the purpose, and the church is the vehicle. It wasn't my idea. It's not an American idea. It's a God idea. He said, this is what we're going to do. And thank God for the scripture that clearly instructs us what church should be all about. Number two, the church is built on Jesus. Simon answered, you are the Messiah, the anointed son of the living God. Some would, some would say, and, and it's reasonable to say that the church is built on a confession. And this is the confession that he confesses. You are the Christ. He says, he says it's you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, some of you maybe who come from Catholic roots understood that they understand this different than the Protestants. They, 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 they thought Jesus was saying, on Peter, I'm going to build the church on you. That's why Peter was the first pope of the Catholic church, because he, 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 was, he established this thing. But Jesus was really saying that it's this statement. It is this statement that you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And he said, on that confession, I'm going to build my church. And you see something interesting here that, you know, there is something about confession. The Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, not think with your brain, but confess with your mouth that God raised Jesus from the dead, you'll be saved. There is power in confession. The Bible says there's life and death are in the power of the tongue. And as we speak things, there's, we, we put power behind it. There's a difference. You know, it's really interesting as people come in for counsel. They have these thoughts and stresses and they want to sit and talk with me about what's going on, and they'll sit, and it's very interesting because they'll just start talking, and everything that made sense in their brain, when it comes out of their mouth, it sounds different. You ever experience this for yourself? And they'll sit down and say, everybody hates me. 
And I'll just kind of look at them, they'll, they'll look, and they'll, they'll hear themselves say those words, and they'll say, well, not, well, not everybody, because I'm sure you haven't met six billion people to give them the chance to all hate you yet. So is, is it everybody? And it's like, they, then they just narrow it down to like their mother-in-law. But in their brain, in their brain, it was like this. But when the words came out, it, it was so different. And, and listen, I want to encourage us that we guard our tongues against saying negative things. You can think it, bring it to Jesus. But when we sort of speak that stuff, it's toxic. But, but Peter does something that's powerful. It wasn't toxic. It was powerful. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what I love about it is before this, he says, who do men say that I am? And he starts to say, he says, some, he says, some say you're John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, and some say Jeremiah, or, or one of the early preachers. And, and I could say, who do people in Florida say that Jesus is? And we could, oh, he was a good teacher, or he was insane, or he was this, or he was that. But here's the only thing that matters for you and me. Who do you say that Jesus is? My sister, who is newly saved probably only about five years now, the, the Lord radically saved her. And her testimony is very public, so I can't share anything that she hasn't overshared herself. But she just w walked away from the Lord at an early, early age, grew up in the same pastor's home I grew up in, and, and just went onto a path of, of, uh, of sin. She was, she was the younger brother trying to discover freedom through law-breaking. And, and what it did is the law-breaking uh, just served to break her. And at, at, in her early 40s, Someone came to her and asked her this question. She would cut hair, and, uh, and, and that's how I would, I would see her every week. That was our connection point because we were kind of at odds because of the way that she was living, and we just we struggled for a long time. We're doing really great now, thank God. But we'd all try to help her. We'd all try to point her to Jesus. We'd all try. But, but someone came and asked her this question. I, I've heard you say, Chriselle, that's her name, Chriselle, who Jesus is to your brother Mark, I've heard you say who Jesus is to your dad, who's a pastor. And he said, who is Jesus to you? And she said, that question, it haunted me. And she went home and through processing that thought, Jesus saved her heart and saved her soul. Who is Jesus to you? And listen, can I talk to you kids? You are not going to be saved because your parents are saved. Or because your grandma's saved. There are no second-handers in heaven. There's only people who have a personal experience with Jesus Christ. Your parents can't get you in like it's a nightclub and they have an extra pass. It doesn't work that way in heaven. Each one of us has to come to the foot of the cross and answer the question, who is Jesus to me? And the answer, the only answer, the answer that you have to say is you are the Christ. You are my Savior, you are the Son of God. Who is Jesus to you? And that's a great question to, to bring to, as you talk to your coworkers and your neighbors and your friends and your family. Because people all know about church. I learned this. There's a lot of churches in Florida. You can get all kinds of churches in Florida. Every flavor you want of the rainbow is, is in Florida, you know. And just because you're in church doesn't mean you're going to be in heaven. Just because I'm on a I go to a gym doesn't mean I get in shape. I actually have to participate in what's happening at the gym, you know? I go to the gym all the time, and uh, there's, there's, there's different people. Some people use it as a place to work out, which makes sense. But other people, they use it as a place to connect with friends and sit on the bench and talk to each other. And I want to say, can you move, please? 
Some of us want to participate. And sometimes churches like that, people just come because it's a social club and there's good coffee and there's cookies out there and you know, the temperature's just right, especially in the hot summer months. And, but that doesn't mean you're going to heaven. We must answer the question, who is Jesus to me? And I would ask you to ask yourself that question every day. Not just once when you got saved, but every day. Is he still my Savior? Is he still my Lord? Number three, the church is a place where truth is declared. Now, buckle your seatbelts here with me. But 1 Timothy 3.15 says this, If I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the buttress of truth. I don't use the word buttress often, so I'll use a different translation for your better understanding, which contains the holds the high truths of God. Can I tell you, there is a battle in our society around truth. I love when people say, oh, that's your truth. This is my truth. There is no your truth and my truth. Can I just tell you? It's like, what's two plus two? Well, my truth says it's four, but your truth might say it's purple. Well, who am I to question? And this is the culture we live in. How dare? Listen, can I tell you, there is something called right there is something called wrong. There is something called heaven. There is something called hell. There is something called Jesus. There's something called the devil. And the truth has to be spoken in the house of God. But can I tell you, that wrestles people. See, the Bible is an equal opportunity offender. So this week, you might say, good sermon, Pastor Mark. And next week, you might go, ouch. That, I, I don't know, I don't know if I, listen, it is not my job every day on Sunday morning to pump you up, to awaken the champion within you, to make you feel amazing, to make you feel like you're the best person in the world. Sometimes it's to convict you. Sometimes it's to challenge you. Sometimes it's to make you go, oh, 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 I, oh, I, oh. You're like, oh, yeah, preach it, Pastor Mark. But then next week I'm preaching about marriage. And you're like, stop preaching that, Pastor Mark. Enough. Then I talk about money, and then you're all under the chair. Listen, the Bible, at some point, if it doesn't offend you, you're probably not reading it. Because it goes against the grain of our sinful nature. It calls us to change. It calls us to transformation. It calls us to be like Jesus. Let me just give you a few examples. How about self-worth? Self-worth. You know, we have a whole generation that's raising their little kids like you are, you are just a champion. You're so perfect. You're special. You're special. The Bible doesn't say, I don't find verses like that. It says that I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. It says this in Matthew 16, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. People are like, I'm on a journey of self-discovery. It's like, well, I'll help you get there. You're a sinner. We've arrived at the destination. You've, you've, and now you need Jesus. And the Bible says when we submit to Jesus, we die to ourselves. It's not all about me. It's all about him. How about this? How about status? Status. Man, status. Everyone in our culture wants status. You want likes. You want follows. You want money. You want prestige. You want titles. You want the corner office. You want all that. What does the Bible say about that? It says this, Matthew 23, 11, the greatest among you must be a servant. 
For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. See what I'm saying? It's countercultural. You come to church, and the Bible starts to go in the face of everything you're being told on TV and social media and, and the radio and in and, 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 and pop culture. It, it comes against the opposite of it. You know, how about this honor? Jesus says, you know, there's a problem. The rich people come in, you give them the good seats, and then the poor people come in, you treat them poorly. He goes, this is not the way church should be. It's opposite. But I'll tell you what, in culture, it's different. When a rich person walks into the car dealership, we treat them different when the poor person walks into the car dealership. Because we know we're going to get something from the rich person, but probably not from the poor person. So we have inequality of, of treating people. But Jesus says, this ought not to be so in the house of God. How about enemies? This is an easy one. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies. What? How many, how many, how many that bothers you? It, it's hard. That's hard for me. It's hard for me to love people I love. <laughs> Come on. How, how many have family? You know, it's like, I love you, but you're not making it easy to love you sometimes. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure my wife feels the same about me. But the thing is like, but it goes further. It says, no, 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 no. Love your enemies. Now, now why, why do I bring all this up? Jesus was the kindest man that ever lived. He was the best preacher that ever lived. He, but he was truth. He didn't speak truth. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. So Jesus, the perfect preacher, perfectly kind, when he got done preaching his perfect sermon, the Bible says they would take up stones to try to kill him. Now I want you to see what that means. He wasn't preaching a seeker-sensitive word. I want to make sure everyone feels comfortable. I want to preach a sermon that makes everyone feel good. And you, oh, thank you, Pastor Mark. Oh, that's a nice, that's a nice word. That's, you're special, Mark. You're, oh, thank you, thank you. Jesus got up and preached, and they said, let's kill him. Was it because he preached too long? Because he preached too rudely? No, because he spoke the truth. See, good preaching brings people to a fork in the road of deciding, will I live for myself and do it my way, or will I do it God's way? And Jesus always put a fork in the road in front of people to decide. But there is a temptation. John Stott said something I love. He said, it's not possible to be faithful <laughs> and popular simultaneously. It's hard because, you know, if you want to be popular, you just you speak a sermon that it makes everyone feel good. But Jesus preached in a way that challenged people. But the temptation is in the church, not just our church, but the Church of America, in an attempt to build the church, that we dumb down the truth. We avoid topics. We avoid issues. And we try to find a safe space to preach in a way that anyone who comes in, sinner or saint, walks away feeling good about themselves. But here's the problem. I have doctors and you have doctors. If I go to a doctor and I have cancer and they run blood tests and they discover that cancer, they could say, oh man, I like Mark so much. And if I tell him this, it's just going to ruin his day. It's going to ruin his day. So you know, I'm going, Mark, you're doing good. Keep it up, man. Keep it up. 
Because you know what he says? It's because he says, Marcus, I love you. And I don't want to ruin your day. Now, I would walk away that day feeling very good, very happy, very good checkup. But is that love from my doctor? No, of course they say no. That's, that's, that, that's literally malpractice. It's malpractice. But it is also malpractice for me as the preacher to not point out the things that will kill the people that live in this city. Not only kill, but damn their souls to hell. We must, as a church, declare the truth. It doesn't mean we're mean or we're harsh. We do it humbly. Now, John Piper is this quote. I, I believe I have it on the screen. He says this, there is a sad irony in the seeming success of many Christian churches and schools. The irony is that the more you adjust obscure biblical doctrines to make Christian reality more attractive to unbelievers, the less Christian reality there is when they arrive, which means that what looks like success in the short run may in the long run prove to be a failure. Now here's the, the phrase I want you to see. If you alter or obscure the biblical portrait of God in order to attract converts, you do not get convert, converts to God, you get converts to an illusion. This is not evangelism, but deception. One of, one of the results of this kind of success, quote unquote, is that sooner or later, the world wakes up to the fact that these so-called Christian churches look so much like them and the way they think that there is no reason to go there. If you adjust your doctrine to fit the world in order to attract the world, sooner or later, the world realizes that they already have what the church offers. That was the story of much mainline Protestantism in Europe and America in the 20th century. Adjust your doctrine, or minimize your doctrine, to attract the world, and in the very process of attracting them, lose the radical truth that alone can set them free. Listen, the world around us needs the radical truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to say, Lord, make us bold to speak the truth in love, in love, to a world that so desperately needs it. You know, it's interesting. I don't consider myself that old, but I'm old enough to remember that just 20 years ago in college, the great debate would have been on universities. Do you believe in faith or do you believe in science? Both of those are out the window now. They don't believe in faith or science. They believe in feelings. Feelings is the biggest thing now. If I feel it, then it's real. I don't have to back it up with anything anymore. And I'll tell you what this is ruining. When I say ruining, it's not a small word. It's ruining our culture. It's ruining the next generation. When we tell kids, go with your feelings. Go with your feelings. Can I tell you, it's never worked out well for me going with my feelings. You know, I get in a fight with my wife and I said, I, I just feel like I want to tell her something. That never goes good. doesn't go good. It's never gone good. When I, when I bite my lip, when Jesus says, shut up, and I hear that voice, that voice is always blessed. But when I say, you know what, I'm going to just let her know what my feelings are right now. How many husbands know that doesn't end well? Martin Luther said this, love this, feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God. Nothing else is worth believing. How many can they say amen to that?
My feelings lie to me. How about you? On a daily basis, my feelings lie to me. But the Bible says, no, no, we're, we're going to be a people of truth. We don't walk by feelings. We walk by the truth of God's word. And finally is this. We must commit to the church Jesus is committed to. We must commit to the church Jesus is committed to. <clears throat> I shared this verse maybe just a month or two ago, but Acts chapter 2, it's a seminal verse for any church. It says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the sharing of meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. What does it mean to be committed to the church? You ready? It means that you come. That sounds basic, right? <laughs> come to church, you know? Um, people are from different backgrounds. I understand, like, uh, just, just church experiences. I, I understand. I, I'm not legalistic. I know people get sick and people go on vacation, and, and, and you know, that's all appropriate. But the Bible says don't get out of, out of the habit of gathering as, as some of you have gotten in the habit of doing. So, you know, we have habits. We have habits. In my house, growing up, if the church was open, we were always there. It was annoying. I missed a lot of things. My wife's here. My friend Lindsay's here. It's like, if the church was open, Sunday morning, we were there. Youth group, we were there. Friday night service, we were there. They were cleaning it, we were there. We were always there. I'm like, this is annoying. I'm a kid. I don't want to be at church. I want to be at somewhere else. I'm like, I tell my dad, there's this thing on Friday. Nope, we have church. Come on, nope, we have church. It was like, can I tell you what, as a 44-year-old man, I learned something really important. When the rubber hits the road, you know who shows up to my house? It's not my soccer team. It's the church. When I'm going through trouble, you know who prays for me? It's not my bowling league. It's the church. When we got COVID in our house, you know who came running? It wasn't the Knights of Columbus. It was the church. It was the church. And I decided, you know what, maybe what my dad did to me was good. He taught me a value, and that is the church is important. And we need to come to church. Why? Why, why can't we just watch online? Here's why, because I want you to see my face, and I want to see yours. I like seeing you. And you know what? Sometimes I see you, and I notice you don't seem okay. That's important, too. Say, hey, how are you doing? Oh, you can fool me online with your Facebook posts. But sometimes I look you in the face, and I think, man, it's been a couple weeks. You had that same look on your face. Everything Okay. Well, no, I, actually, Pastor Mark, I'm going through it. Not just me, not just me, you with each other, sitting next to each other. You doing okay? You doing okay? We need that human contact to look at each other in the face. But also, the Bible calls us to come together for the express purpose of communally lifting up a confession to God in song and in prayer to glorify God together. The second is to serve, to serve. And serving looks different in every season of life. Maybe you just had a baby. I understand that if you just had a baby, you can't maybe serve in the kids' ministry the way you did two years ago. Or maybe you're, you're getting older and you realize, I, if, I, if I chase a child, I, I could die. And so maybe that's not for you either, you know. It's okay to laugh. Man, you guys are like cracking me up back there. 
But you know what? Every season there's something to do. We had these ladies in our church. They were older ladies. They had a ministry of writing cards to people. I loved it. I would love it. I would love when I get a card. Like, who does a handwritten card anymore? It's like a, it's like, like you get an email. But I had this one lady every time I preached, because I'm preaching more now than I would preach then, but I'd preach about every month or every few weeks. Every single time I'd get a card four days later. I'd say, Pastor Mark, thank you for your sermon. I love how you said, ba, 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 you know, and point out something exact from my sermon. I thought, I love this. She was an older lady, but I'll tell you, that was a ministry to me. And she did it for all the pastors. She did it for all the speakers, the children's workers, the people who were sick. And so just from her home, she would write her card. That was very impactful. What I'm trying to say is every season of your soul, you need to say, Lord, how would you have me serve the house of God? There's no retirement. Retirement is something very um, uh, talked about in Florida. <laughs> Especially in this area. I hear a mention of it often. But it's not mentioned in the Bible. Now, I'm not rebuking you because you can retire from work, but you never retire from the kingdom of God. You never retire from Christianity. You never retire from saying, God, how can I serve you? To our last dying breath, our heart should be, Lord, how can I serve your house? Number three is to give. Giving, one way of giving is serving for sure. Maybe it's being on the worship team, helping Miss Allie back there with those kids or cleaning up or whatever it is. But, but financially giving to support what our church is doing here and in the community and, and around the world with missions to give. Also to invite. We cover this because obviously the Great Commission is something we talk about all the time, but it's like we should always be thinking, who, who, could I, who could I bring and sit with me at church this weekend? Now, here's two big ones, and this is where I'm going to start to land the plane right here. One is to know others deeply. To know others deeply. To, 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 to go beyond, hey, what's going on? To say, you know, I want to do life with some people sincerely. Where there's, there's, I really know you, and you, listen, you really know me. It's to know deeply and to be known deeply, that we don't just walk around with superficialities. You know, last night, I, one of my, someone, my, my friend, God put him in my heart, and I just reached out to him, and, and I said, how you doing? And it was, like, it was like, okay, not okay, really bad. Because if I didn't push right there, we would have just said, oh, good, man, well, hey, hey, what's the chief score? What, does anyone know how the chief's doing right now? It's like superficial, right? Not that the chiefs aren't important. Chiefs are important. I know they're playing, right, in Germany, is that right? I know some of you are looking down at your phones, I noticed, so. Um, but you know, especially guys, us guys can be very superficial with our friendships. Hey, how you doing? Hey, how you? It's like you could be dying inside, struggling with depression and whatever, but you're like, hey, I'm good, man, what's going on? How about them bears? You know, but it's like, but the Bible calls us as a community to go deep with each other. Not everybody not everybody. That's weird. You don't want to tell everybody what the doctor said on Friday. That's weird. But we all need a circle of people within the larger audience here that we walk together with. Romans 12, 9 says this, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourself. This word sincere, I love this story. It's true. The word sincere, it sounds like such a funny thing, but the word sincere in the New Testament means without wax. Like, what the heck does that mean, without wax? Well, what happens is merchants would get pottery, 
and sometimes the pottery would, would crack, especially if you ever know anything about pottery, you shape it, you dry it, then you put it in the kiln, and in the kiln, it can crack. Well, all that work is, is virtually destroyed unless you do something tricky, and that is you drip wax into the crack, and then you cover it with, with, with dust, and it looks, and then you paint it, and it would seem to be totally good. But the problem is it had cracks that you couldn't see. And they would say, merchants over their shops would say, sincere or without wax. They would celebrate the fact that you're not getting ripped off here. Listen, a lot of times it's easy to come to church and we all have cuts and cracks and, and issues that we seek to cover up and look good. But real love says this, love must be sincere. That I'm willing to come around you and say, you know, I'm actually broken in this area. I'm actually, I have a fracture in this area of my life. And, and I don't share this with everyone, but, but it's the house of God and it's the people of God. And I'm going to share this with you. Would you pray with me? Would you walk with me so I can be made whole? This is the kind of church that God wants us to be. And so I pray, I want to invite the, the worship team to come. We're going to end with a song in just a minute. As the worship team is coming, I'm going to invite all of us to stand to our feet. And I want to pray with you as your pastor here this morning. I thank God for the church. I, at a very young age, I, I always, I, I knew the Lord was leading me into uh, full-time vocational ministry. And for the last 20 years, that's what I've done. I've been, it's been a total joy to, to serve the house of God. And I've just seen what happens when the church is healthy, how awesome things happen in, in the church, how lives are transformed, how families bond, how kids grow up around this. I, I was joking with you about my dad, but the truth is I, I just cut my teeth. I'm in church. It's just like church was a part of who I was because you know what? A lot of things come and go, but I want the church of God for me and my family to be a steady thing. Not just because I'm a pastor. <clears throat> because listen, this is the thing. The church. You know, what are you building, Jesus? He's, he's, he, Jesus is about a lot of things. He's doing a lot of things. But he makes a statement. He says, I am going to build my church and nothing's going to stop it. Isn't that encouraging news for us today? You say, oh, what about, what about politics? What if, what if the government? What if, what if this? And what if there's an economic downturn? And what if, Jesus says, I am going to build my church and nothing is going to stop it. That should in, invoke courage inside of us to say, you know what? I want to get on that bus. That's the one that's not going to break down. That's the one that's not going to get detoured. That's, not, that's the one that's not going to go off the road. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church and nothing's going to stop it. I want to pray with us, and then we're going to sing a song together. But Lord, right now.